glad to see that you are here today. You know, I've noticed something that um, I am beginning to like Easter music as much as I like Christmas music. I'm just saying. I'm not sure why. Actually, I do know why, but anyway, I am digging this music that we've been playing, so that's awesome. We're in a season, uh, actually we're finishing up a season called Lent. Um, Traditionally in the the church calendar, um, Lent is that 40-day period leading up to um, uh, Holy Week. And today, being Palm Sunday, actually marks the beginning of Holy Week. And it's one thing to say that, because I I grew up in a very uh, uh, traditional Lutheran church. That was my background. And uh, I, I was very familiar with the church calendar because... Uh, they made a big deal of it, and the fact that they would, you know, change, you know, you know, colors on the altar, and there was certain things, but but I had no idea how it all fit together, um, and that may just have been because I was a teenager and I wasn't paying attention, or it could be, you know, any number of things. But l- let me just try to situate this: when we talk about Holy Week, when we talk about this this season between Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday, which I just love to say. Resurrection Sunday. That period sits within the grand sweep of Scripture. So from Genesis uh, all the way to Revelation at the end, there is a story that God is telling us. And if you you think about uh, how a a typical storyline goes, every story has one common factor. It's called the climax. And we're getting to the climax, the whole reason for the story. When we talk about Resurrection Sunday, what's happening this week from Palm Sunday to Resurrection Sunday, this entire week is really about the climax of the entire story. It's a big deal. Can I just say that? Because bottom line, if we don't have the resurrection, we don't have a faith. We might have a great philosophy. We might have a you know, a wise way of living, but without the resurrection, we don't have a faith. And so this is the highest, holiest day of the year, and, uh, and we get to begin the, the process of, of working through the climax. And so we're going to pick up the story in Luke 19 today. If you have a Bible, you might want to turn there. That's where we're going to camp out. Luke chapter 19 is where, where we'll be. There's this big story, this rescue mission that God has been on since the fall of humanity when human beings first chose against God and he's been steadily moving all throughout history to this point. We get to this this climactic event. It's it's the part of the story where the hero jumps into the water to rescue the drowning man but has lost himself, or is he, right? It's that kind of a story. So, let's go into the text today in Luke chapter 19. Let's learn what happened back then, and then let's see how it impacts us today. That's how we're, uh, we're going to roll today. So, let's go to work. I'm in Luke chapter 19. I'm beginning with verse 28. Let me just read through this, and then we're going to pick it apart a little bit. Okay? Luke chapter 19, verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany, At the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent 
two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Tell him, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. Verse 37. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. This is the word of the Lord and we believe it. The passage here is, uh, there's several things that I think we need to say about it. The first one is, let's just deal with the obvious thing in the room. It's Palm Sunday, but Luke doesn't mention anything about palms. You actually find that in the other um, biographies of Jesus where they talk about palms. Now, don't freak out about that. It's just this author's perspective. Remember, the fundamental premise is that each one of the ancient writers is a sophisticated writer, authors with agendas. It's not that it didn't happen. It's just that wasn't important to Luke as he was writing it. Does that make sense? So we still call it Palm Sunday because everybody else mentions palms. Luke is just interested in something else other than the palms. Does that make sense? Nod your head so I know you're awake. Yes, okay, good. Makes sense. So the fact that there's no palms is, is not that big a deal, so we shouldn't freak out about it. So there are th- this, uh, this storyline at the beginning, this, what we call the triumphal entry, has three parts to it. Here's the first one. first one deals with a donkey. The second one deals with stones. The third one deals with the city of Jerusalem itself. Each one of these little scenes within the story are, uh, help move uh, Jesus uh, toward his destination, but most importantly, towards his destiny. Does that make sense? So we see this movement within the text, and we're going to kind of follow along with it. So let's pick up this first one, this, this idea about the donkey. And I want to remind you, a couple of weeks ago, we were in Luke chapter 9. And you'll remember, here's what it says. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Do you remember this? We had this conversation a couple of weeks ago. So there's this point in Luke chapter 9 where Jesus changes from his ministry in the north in, uh, around, in and around the Sea of Galilee, and he's starting to move towards Jerusalem. So we've now had 10 chapters of Jesus getting from Galilee to Jerusalem and all of the, the, the events that happen along the road, okay? Then, in verse 19, we see this. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going 
up to Jerusalem. Luke is giving us a little marker. He's saying, hey, remember when we were talking about this 10 chapters ago? Here we go. We're finally getting towards our destination. This is a, you know, what we call a, a geographic marker, but also a time marker. And it's a way that the ancient writers would move stories along. So Jesus, <laughs> he sends two disciples to an unnamed village. Now, notice what he says here. This is very interesting to me. He says, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. So evidently, Jesus is operating as the prophet, and he's saying, you know, you're going to go to the city, and over to the right there, you're going to see a little colt, and it's going to be tied up. Untie it and bring it here. That's just weird. So, guys, I want you to go boost a ride for me. That's what he's saying, right? And then, and then if, if anyone asks you, <laughs> why are you untying it? Tell them, the Lord needs it. Yeah, next time you go borrow someone else's car, let me know how that one works out for you, okay? It's just, to me, it's a kind of a humorous story that, that's happening here. And Jesus tells his disciples to go and borrow a colt, I guess. I don't know. And then the two disciples, it happens just as Jesus said that it would. And they started tying it. I can only imagine the scene, right? They're looking around. They started untying the colt. And somebody's like, hey, what are you doing? Uh, Lord needs it. <laughs> kind of, I just see. There's the Bible and there's the David version of the Bible, and sometimes the David version of the Bible is just trying to keep it real. I guess I don't know. Anyway, so uh, anyway, a cult um, in some of the um, other translations, uh, a cult can mean a, a young horse, uh, or it can mean a young. Donkey. There's some evidence in the in the Greek language that it, it could refer to to either in in some cases. So a colt can be a young horse, or it, it can be a young donkey in this case. But the point is, is one that had never been, um, never had been uh, ridden. But but here's the thing: when we start talking about this idea and and just this the strange request that he makes. I, th there's, a, there's a lesson here. This is the freebie. I'm going to give you a freebie. I try to give you a freebie every Sunday. So here's the freebie. You might want to write this one down. Don't be surprised if God asks you to do weird things. Okay? I mean, sometimes I, you know, really? <laughs> yeah, and so you just kind of, you have to move ahead. So don't be surprised. The disciples felt that too. Brothers and sisters, you are in good company if God is asking you to do something strange. Okay, so be, be encouraged by that. Luke often shows us how Jesus connects back to some of the Old Testament prophets. And so when we read this scene about the, the cult, around, about this young donkey, it actually brings to mind an Old Testament passage let me show you this. This is in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 through 10. Let me read this to you. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim, and the war horses from Jerusalem, 
and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. It's a beautiful picture about this king riding in. And, and what, one of the things that we, we know is that historically, when kings entered a city, it was typically on one of two mounts. One was a war horse. If they were bringing conquest and war to a city, they would ride a charger. Kind of reminds me that when Alexander the Great swept through the Middle East with his forces, he laid siege to two major cities in what is now Lebanon, completely destroying them. And his reputation preceded him to the point where Jerusalem swung their gates open to him and he won the city without a fight. And of course, he had a famous war horse. And you can almost imagine that black stallion in this idea of historicity, this idea that person coming with conquest rode a war horse, but the person who came in peace rode a donkey, rode a colt. And it's very important because we see this threaded throughout the Old Testament. It was common for the kings who were of the lineage of David to do this. Let me show you. This is in 1 Kings chapter 1. King David said, Call Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaniah son of Jehoiada. Jehoiada. Sorry. When they came before the king, he said to them, See, fun with Hebrew today, okay? So things that you have to learn. Anyway, um, when they came before the king, he said to them, Take your Lord's servants with you and have Solomon, my son, mount my own, what's the word? Mule. And take him down to Gehom. There have Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel. He came in peace, and there was a peaceful transfer of power. And so we know that Throughout the Old Testament, we see this time and time again. And so what happens here when, when, when they take and they, they have this, this colt and they put their, their cloaks on him and they set Jesus on it, this is a royal procession. Don't miss that. That's an important point to this whole thing. This is a royal procession. And it begins to gain some momentum. And the scene changes in verse 37. When he came near the place where the road goes down from the Mount of Olives, the road goes down. Um, let's see. Uh, yes, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Um, Emily, do I have that picture? No, leave it right there for a second. <clears throat> I've got a picture I want to show you here in a second. Anyway, the crowd seems to understand that, that there's a royal image here, and they begin to praise him loudly. Now, remember, in some of the other uh, accounts of this, in the, in the other Gospels, um, we hear this word, Hosanna. You remember this? You know, we don't have palms, and we don't have Hosanna in Luke. What is Luke trying to do to us here? Hosanna is a Hebrew word for God save us. But we don't see that in this passage. Rather, it's blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Remember, this is a royal procession. There's a different thing that's going on in Luke than, than what we see in the other, the other Gospels. 
And it's, a, it's this different perspective. And they're probably quoting from a psalm, from one of the, po- uh, one of the poets. Luke 19, 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Look at Psalm 118, verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. Okay? So they're pulling these ideas out of the, out of the Old Testament and they're bringing it into the current set of circumstances because they believe that something is going on. Now, all of a sudden, we get a wet blanket. They're called Pharisees. And they come up, and you can kind of see them. I mean, they're just, I don't know, in the David version of the Bible, I think they're kind of pompous. I don't know, maybe not. Maybe they're nice guys. Beats me. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, stop them shouting some of these things. And Jesus replies with this very cryptic statement. I tell you, he said, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Now, please understand that the Pharisees have been sparring with Jesus this entire journey. Starting in Luke chapter 9 and going through 19, they've been mixing it up. Jesus usually comes out on top. In fact, he always comes out on top. But as they're going along, this is not new. This is not a new thing that Luke is introducing here. This is just kind of par for the course. And they understand his power. And this royal imagery and the royal language that's being used is not lost on them at all. They understand what's happening here. But you have to, you have to keep in mind that the potential, the thing that's really aggravating him is the fact that he's upsetting their way of life. The world operates this way. There's a temple. There's a hierarchy within the temple, and there's the Pharisees. And Jesus comes on the scene, and he's constantly challenging all of their theological presuppositions over and over and over. And what's happening is that you've got this group of Pharisees who are looking at what's happening. They're like, no, 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 not him. Not him. He, he can't be the one. We don't want him because he's so different. This is not what we expected. And the expectation is high here on all accounts. You see, the temple is the source of their power and influence, and frankly, it frames their worldview. If Jesus is who people think that he is, that all changes. And if we know anything about human beings, when you start messing with their source of power and money, you're going to get a little resistance. And so here they are. Don't, don't, don't let your disciples talk like this. You, 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 you can't be doing this. And Jesus makes this statement. I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Now, there's a lot of different ways to think about this. There's an awful lot of ink spilled on what this means. But I think... I think what Jesus is answering here is is with a little bit of hyperbole, a little bit of exaggeration in order to make make a very important point. And he really says, if it's not them, then the stones will. Did he mean that literally? I mean that literally if they quiet, the stones are, I don't know. Does it matter? Not really. 
Because I think what this ultimately is, is kind of a very subtle indictment on the Pharisees. He's saying to them ultimately, you, teachers of the law, you should know better. You should understand this. You have the text in front of you. You study it day and night. You should understand this. And if you're not going to praise, if you are not going to understand what's happening in this moment, then everybody else is going to. And if they're not going to, then the stones are. Do you see that? I mean, this is, this is that's a smackdown. That's a big deal. And believe me, the Pharisees aren't going to like that. Something is happening here. And yet, very abruptly, the scene keeps moving. Stones will cry out, verse 41, As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. This is a a famous painting by a, a man named Edward Lear. This is the view of Jerusalem. Um, as he saw it in the uh, early, mid-19th century. This is the city from the Mount of Olives. So um, obviously things would have looked very different um, even in the times of Jesus, but you can almost imagine him coming up over the crest of the hill and seeing the citadel spread out in front of him. And what is his reaction? He weeps. He weeps over it. Kind of reminds me of the, of the prophet Jeremiah called the weeping prophet who knew that the people of the city were not making the choice towards God, that they were choosing something else and he would weep over the city because he knew the judgment of God would fall on it at some point. You see, the people in the procession, they're claiming these things and they're praising God and they're talking about this king, their expectations were sky high and they still don't get it. Even his own disciples are not understanding what's really happening in all of this. The religious leaders don't get it. And look what happens in verse 42. After he weeps, he says, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. Hmm. If you only knew what would bring you peace. I think what had happened is that all of the people at some level had grown cold to God and, and now couldn't even recognize God's handiwork. Interesting little fact. The name Jerusalem means... City of Peace. Salem is a a variation on the word shalom. Jerusalem, City of Peace. It's like you don't even understand your namesake. The palace, or I should say the temple, that they built for God was actually modeled off of an ancient Near Eastern palace because that was the place where God would dwell, where he would sit on his throne and rule his people. The temple was a palace. And soon the city 
would, would reject their rightful king. And Jesus saw this when he crested the hill. He looked over at the city and understood what the potential was supposed to be. You were supposed to be Jerusalem, the place where God dwelt, that, that, that his power and, and his love and his compassion and, and his justice and mercy would all emanate from this city of peace. And look what you've become. And he weeps over it. You see, we, we want to make this about the politics of the day. We, we want to make this about Rome. But it isn't Rome. Rome isn't the issue here. It's the spiritual blindness of the people who are supposedly gods failing to see God move. I, how can he not weep when he sees that? We've been talking about uh, Lent and giving up giving up things like discontentment and busyness. Last week I said, how about we give up our silence? Meaning our silence towards God. Do you ever have that person where you haven't talked to him for a while and it just gets a little awkward when you have to talk to him again? Sometimes that happens with us and God, let's be honest. God, you know what, I haven't talked to you for a while. Not sure really what to say. Sorry about that. The upshot is, God doesn't like your mom. How come you never call? You never call. And you're eating because you don't look like you're eating. No, that's not God. God doesn't do that. I don't get out much, folks. Okay, so this is exciting. But sometimes we, we get awkward around God. And, and so the, the thought last week was, what, what would happen if we would break that silence and we would set an alarm just to kind of break that up a little bit every 60 minutes? And just a little reminder, you've got, you've got smartphones. Let that smart work for you. Every 60 minutes, go off. Just to remind you that God is present. God is with you. Maybe ask yourself a question like, you know, God, who do you want me to pray for right now? <clears throat> By the way, I did really great at this at the, at the be- beginning f- few days. Not so good the last part of the week, but the upshot is I can get back in the saddle. I plan, plan on doing that. Just to break that, that habit that I have to not talk to God. We all have it to a certain degree. And then the other thing we asked everyone to do is, is would you just pray for one person? Just pray for one person. Pray with them. So I've got a great story. Um, Pastor Dan had an oppor- opportunity this week. I can share the story, right? <laughs> yeah, I thought so. Uh, he was talking to a guy, a guy that we both know, um, uh, works at a store that we, we frequent quite a bit um, for Thrive Church, and uh, he's been a big help to us. And Dan was in uh, chatting with him uh, just this week, and uh, um, in the course of the conversation, found out that he was struggling because his dad is ill and he had some personal things that were going on. And, and uh, Dan just, just asked him, he said, hey, can I pray for you? Because we, we figured out that he was a believer. And he says, can I, can I pray for you? And he says, oh, yeah, that'd be great. And so Dan took it a step further and he said, can I pray for you right now? Can I just tell you, most of the time when people, when you ask people if you can pray for them right now, they're not going to say no because they don't know what to say. They don't want to offend you, but, you know. And he did. 
And he said that he had to, he had to actually cut his prayer short because the guy was losing it. That's the power of breaking our silence with God because you can say things to God on behalf of someone else that you can't necessarily say to their face. And for that moment, it was incredibly meaningful for that young man as he was dealing with some heavy things in his life. About a week ago, I was, uh, I was on, on Facebook and I saw a friend of mine that I've known for a few years uh, just make this comment on her Facebook page saying that uh, her husband has decided to end their marriage. And uh, I know a little bit about the relationship. I don't know a lot, but I know a little bit. And so I sent her a quick note on Facebook on, on the messenger, and I just said, hey, I'm so sorry to hear that. I said, I just want you to know I'm praying for you today. And I did. I just stopped right there, and I said, God, I don't know what's going on, but I'm trusting that you do, and I don't know what my friend needs, but again, I trust that you do. And, you know, that's one thing. It's okay to say that you pray for them, but you probably ought to pray for them. Can I just say that? So you got you to... You know, hit the pause button and actually pray. Interesting enough, about an hour later, I get a little note, and it and it was the, I don't know, it just said hugs. That means a lot. People, even if they're not believers, want to know that people are on their side and pulling for them, and interceding on their behalf in front of a higher power, which they may have questions about, but you know, when you're down and out and you're dealing with the muck of life and you're dealing with all of the the difficulties and the challenges, you're going to hold out hope that there really is a higher power and anybody who connects to that on your behalf, thumbs up. I'll take it. I know very few people who will reject that. I'm sure they're out there, but I've not come across them. And so break the silence and talk to him about it. So this, this Lent, when we, we talk about this idea of giving things up, and I was thinking about this, watching my news feed this week. Ugh. The world has changed since last fall. Have you noticed? I mean, it's been changing all along for a period of time. In fact, the only constant really is change. But I've noticed that since last fall, things have changed even more dr- dramatically. I mean, everything from the campaign to now we have some international intrigue. And oh yeah, there's still wars going on, plenty of them. And I just wonder if maybe this Lent, maybe this Lent we could give up politics. Now, What I'm talking about here is I'm not talking about not voting. I'm not talking about that. I'm not saying to not participate in the political process because you need to do that as a responsible citizen. You should care and you should participate in those things, but rather understand I'm talking about a bigger issue here. And here it is. Politics will never solve problems of the heart. Ever. There's no political solution. There's no law. There's no Supreme Court decision that is ever going to change what's wrapped up in the human heart. That's, that's something only God can do. So yes, should we participate in it? Sure, but let's not put all of our hope in that. Let's put our hope in the one who can actually change the human heart. 
It's so easy to look through, through the news feeds and you know, television. Sometimes I just got to turn it off because it's, you can get so overwhelmed. And it's easy to look for quick fixes. We just, you know, let's just fix it. We put band-aids on things and think it's a fix. And, and the problem is, is that whenever you do that, it's really easy to miss what God is actually doing to be that blindness, if we only knew what would truly bring us peace. You see, when Jesus crested the hill, it wasn't that he was just weeping for Jerusalem. He was. But that same story plays out today among all of us. If you really understood what would bring you peace. The reality is, with all of this, I can't control what's going on in the world. If we did, it'd be a much better place, I'm sure. No, I can't, I can't control that, neither can you. I can't save kids getting gassed in the Middle East. Shoot, I can't even help hungry kids go to bed with full bellies here in Tulsa County. can't control those things. But there is one thing I can control. That's me and the choices that I make. The person that I'm choosing to become. I've got no voice on the international stage, the national scene. Shoot, I don't even have a voice in this state, let alone local government. But I can control the kinds of things that go into my own heart. So the question is, how's your heart? Look, no, we don't have a large microphone. But what we do have are the choices that we make day in and day out. And if I'm making the choice towards Jesus and you're making the choice towards Jesus and and someone else is making the choice to move towards Jesus and we all start moving that direction, then we build momentum And things change. And so my question for all of us today is can we give up the political solution and start looking deep inside our own hearts and just saying, God, start with me. How's your heart? We're getting ready to go into Resurrection Sunday, that moment in time that changed everything. And so as you go into this week, my prayer for you is that you would very deeply look inside and just say, God, what are the things that I need to do to be more like you? What's going to bring me peace? Help me to know what would really bring peace. Peace.